Uh, hi, I'm Andy, and um, a parishioner here, and um, thank you for giving me a chance to share a witness for you. Uh, we have a few minutes, so I can't cram it all in there, but I'm happy to share some of the things. I made some notes over the past couple of weeks while I had time to, to pray on this. Um, I believe tonight we're talking about the Eucharist, and I can start there on my thought about that. I've, I've been a Catholic all my life, born Catholic, but I wasn't always a practicer the whole time. Um, like I mentioned earlier, when I was a teenager, actually, when I was being confirmed, they put a chrism oil on your forehead, the bishop does. And I just remember this clearly at the time he did it, I thought to myself, I don't believe. But I let him do it anyway, and I'm thankful that he did because uh, there's so many things in life that have you, we're not strong enough to handle it. We're, we're just not, and we have to recognize that. We're, we try to be in control. The harder you try, the farther you get from what's really going on around you. But uh, the Eucharist is very important to me. I uh, enjoy the presence, and I've been in some RCIA meetings and things before, and I'll hear, hear people say, well, I just have a hard time believing that it's transfigured into Jesus's body. And my response is, do you believe in God? And do you believe that God can do anything? You got to ask yourself, do you really believe that he can do anything? If he can do anything, he can turn that piece of bread into his body. And if that's hard, then it's okay. There's other uh, ways to stay close to Christ. But to me, it's, it's uh, extremely important to get that closeness. Um, so that's, that's where I'm at on the, on the uh, Eucharist for, for that part. I want to kind of skip through. I know I won't have a lot of time, but... The other thing that uh, I try to practice or witness to is, is prayer life. It uh, was never as big as it is has been in the past few years for me because I've run into some trouble. I've done some things that uh, I don't even know why I did them. The accuser is uh, very devious. And especially I get a little intimidated or nervous when I come up to profess because he will be right around the corner on me. Today was a little awkward. I might have just been nervous, but it never fails if I do something really nice or I go out of my way or I selfish or I selflessly offer something. The old expression, a good deed doesn't go unpunished. That's why he is there to deter you. And you have to know if you know it, you kind of chuckle it off, you know, because it will eventually be fine. But there are hiccups in the road on that part. Um, <clears throat> The prayer I mentioned, prayer life, I've found that it's really important to set aside a specific time, especially if it's in the beginning of the day, to maybe it's 10 minutes, it's fine, just start. And you'll find it will grow because you will, you will start a relationship with God. To me, when I pray, it's not about me telling God what I need or want or helping me fix this. He already knows what you need and what you want. He knows. He wants you to have a relationship with him. He wants you to sit quiet as long as you can before your mind wanders to the grocery list or whatever it is, work or the, the truck flat tire, whatever. And then you pull yourself back. He just loves the effort because he wants to be, he is our best friend. We just... There's a book out there that a priest told me about years ago called The Hound of Heaven. 
in this real short, I don't spoiler alert, but a real short synopsis of it is there's this guy his whole life. He hears God running after him and he's just fighting him off. He goes, no, I don't believe in all this. Finally, he dies. He hears these footsteps behind just, just this dog trying to chase him down. He gets to heaven and God says, that wasn't my feet. That was your feet running away from me. It's just, he's there for us. He's right here. He's, he's always accessible. And if we allow ourselves to look at life, and it's hard to do on a consistent basis, life comes at us. So that prayer time is very important um, because you also have to learn to hear his voice. We all have voices in our heads. Sometimes they're right things and sometimes they're not so nice things. But if you do it a while and you start to just try to, basically that's why they say seek his face. You want to seek God's face. Imagine that for a minute. What do you think God looks like? I mean, if you, is it just a big light? Is it, when you communicate with somebody, somebody you care about, you look them in the eye. You look them in the, you don't look over here and go, hey, you know, you'll seek their face. That's what it means. So if you close your eyes when you pray and you try to discern what his voice is, a lot of times it's not what you want to hear. A lot of times it's the hardest thing to do, but it's the, it's him talking to you. It is him talking to you, I guarantee you. Um, he, he's, he's, and sometimes I, after you do it for a while, I woke up the other day in the middle, in the morning, first thing came to my head, Solomon, 2 Samuel, that's what, 2 Samuel, out of nowhere. I'm like, I don't even know, I've never read the Bible front to back. I mean, I read the New Testament pretty regular, but the Old Testament, I read some here and there. But I went and I looked it up and um, it was talking about David and his uh, um, affair with uh, Bathsheba and how he murdered his wife or his, her husband by sending him to the front line in the war. He did all these things. David was not, well, he was a good guy. He, his heart was good. God knew his heart. And he forgave him, even though he did a lot of very bad things. And I've done some not so good things too. And I think that came to me and I even talked to, consulted with Father Ed a little on it. And he said, Andy, that's, um, you gotta remember, he's telling you that he, you did some bad things. You gotta forgive yourself. It's another very hard thing for Catholics to do because we're loaded up with guilt, but he doesn't want us to be walking around like that. He, he, one sermon I went to was a priest over at Holy Name on Southwest Boulevard. And the priest said, look, God has infinite mercy and compassion. He, he, he will forgive you if you're sorry and you repent. And by repent, do the very best you can to stop doing what it is that you know you shouldn't be doing. But he said, we a lot of times think he's up there with a hammer wanting to hit us on the head every time we do something wrong. He says, this couldn't be farther from the truth. He wants you to be happy. Do whatever you think it's gonna to be happy. And it kind of clicked with me a little bit at the time and I don't have enough time to kind of go into all that, but it was an important part of a message I got at one other church. I'll go to any church. I mean, this is right here by, this is my parish, but if I'm on the road or out of town, I love to see what different churches look like. And you know, it all still feels the same. I, I could. I love sitting in a church. I just feel at home. It's just, it's awesome. So anyway, I don't know that witnessing, well, I believe witnessing like this will help you feel 
hopefully some connection in some way with what you're thinking. I have no idea what you guys, where your minds are at on it, but I'm just, hopefully the spirit is sharing something out of all these notes I took. And I apologize if I'm jumping around a little bit. Praying also is, uh, you need to do it with conviction. In church, when we say our prayers like the Our Father, if people sit around me, sometimes they'll give a little look at me like, because when I say it, I, I, I don't want to say pronounce every word, we all do, but I emphasize the words that really mean something to me. Like our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Not mine, yours. If that means I got to be pulled down the street by whatever, then if that serves his will, then hey, I don't like it, but I'm trying to muster up the courage to be able to say I could do it if it happened. And there's been situations in my life where I don't know why I did what I did and it was very dangerous, but I came out okay. And the only thing I can attribute it to, a real quick story was I was on my motorcycle going down to the lake. This wasn't a bad thing, but it was an accident. And this is crazy. I was going down the back farm road car came around a corner way out there and he crossed the yellow line and I thought wow if I was two seconds ahead he could have threw me into the ditch and I'm riding and I look at and on a bike wherever you look that's where you go I started looking and by the time I I was in that ditch at 60 miles an hour and I remember I hit the ditch and I saw the grass come flying through my helmet I had a mask or helmet on mask on and my I remember my and after my head went like this I felt nothing and it was a gravel ditch with the big, I mean, it's a farm ditch. I get, I get up and I'm like, I start sweating. I almost felt like, I, was, I mean, I almost went into shock, sat down. The guy that came around, he stopped and helped me get the bike out. And he goes, now I got to call the ambulance. He goes, you got to have, a, you need an ambulance. I go, no, I'm, I'm fine. I'm a little shook up. I had one little tiny scratch here and eventually a really big bruise on my back, but nothing for 60 miles an hour into that ditch. I don't know how that happened. And the bike was hardly even hurt at all. One little turn signal was bent. But the weirdest part or the most uh, convincing and witnessing part of this story will kind of blow your mind. I get down to the lake house. My wife and I weren't getting along real well, so I didn't want to give her another reason to start complaining. I mean, no offense if she sees this iPod. Deborah, you're a very nice lady. I don't mean to, I was out of, out of line. But anyway, um, I'm staying there the next morning, everybody's having breakfast and my phone rings and it's my sister and she's up here. Now, nobody knew I had this motorcycle. I've used to ride them all the time. I didn't have one because I had kids, but this weekend we were having friends down from New York and they were all riding their bikes. So I rented one. I was the only one that knew I was renting a motorcycle. Rode it down there, accident happened. Next day, my phone rings, my sister, Andy. And my sister is very uh, uh, spiritual she's very spiritual and she goes Andy are you, are you okay and I go yeah why and I go in the other room and I'm like what's going on and she goes well yesterday about three o'clock and that's when this happened I got this premonition that you were involved in a really bad accident with a motorcycle and I'm like oh my god Kathleen I was in an accident but as soon as I hit the ground it's like something became between me and the and the ground she said, as soon as I felt that, I dropped to my knees and started to pray for you. <laughs> I just, I mean, that's one little incident and I'm not special. We're all special. God loves us all. And, but that was just like, 
there's no other explanation for that. So the other thing too is angels are out there, but they're not always as pretty as the guardian angels. Sometimes the angels that come into our life are not real nice because they're trying to wake you up. I've had three or four angels try to beat the back of my skull in one time. Should have been dead, but I wasn't. But they were trying to say, hey, you're out of line. And they were right. I was out of line. So, but I'm thankful. I'm thankful. In prayer, always constantly be thankful. It eliminates anxiety and depression. I have both. If you're anxious, you're worried about the future. If you're depressed, you're worried about the past. Stay right here and be thankful. And you can't, you can't be thankful and upset at the same time. It's just, it's not, it's not possible. So focus and practice. All this is practice. We're practicing Catholicism. It's a journey. We're here to help each other. And we have great people that are here to inspire us and talk to us anytime, even my uncle, even though he didn't that one time. But, uh, oh gosh, I hope he doesn't watch this. <laughs> Sorry, Uncle Tom. Um, let's see what else I got here. The witnessing is nice with the four of you here, five, um, because we... Um, that's what witnesses is. In the, in the Bible, they had to have two people. That's like the reading last week with uh, when uh, Moses and Elijah, there were two witnesses to, to show that this happened. And uh, witnessing is important. It's part of our journey. It's part of our calling. So I guess in wrapping it up, um, God will forgive you, but there are consequences for what you do. God will forgive you. But if you go lose all your money gambling or something crazy like that, you're going to have to deal with the consequences. But he'll forgive you. Um, I truly believe that. He just wants to be our best friend. And he is our best friend. So did you have any questions or anything that maybe I touched on you want me to say any more about? No pressure. No pressure? Okay. <laughs> Good. Well, thank you for hearing me, and it is uh, a, a privilege to be able to share my thoughts. Thank you. Thank you, Andy. Okay, so, yeah, we've been trying to have a little testimonies as we mean people, the various walk in the Catholic faith as we're moving forward. And last week we talked about uh, the sacraments. We touched on all the sacraments except for the Eucharist. And I left, uh, wanted to leave, intentionally leave that uh, for tonight so we can just focus on the, um, the Holy Eucharist. What's the matter? Mask, oh, thank you. Thank you, boy, it's sure good to get that thing off. Um, <laughs> I do not like masks. So I want to open up with a couple, reading a couple of, of scriptures that pertain to the Eucharist. And one of them is, is from uh, Paul's writing in 1 Corinthians. Paul's first letter to the Corinthians is one of the earliest books in the New Testament. Predates the gospel by, I don't know, 10, 15, 20 years. So this is St. Paul writing to the church in Corinth. Brothers and sisters, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? 
Because the loaf of bread is one, we, though many, are one body, for we all partake of the one loaf. For I received from the Lord what I also handed on to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night that he was handed over, took bread, and after he had given thanks, broke it and said, This is my body that is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the death of the Lord until he comes again. If that wording sounds familiar, it's very close to what we say in the Mass every day. It's in the words of institution as the priest consecrates the bread and the wine. The second passage I want to read is from John chapter 6. In John's gospel, he does not have the Last Supper. Instead, he discusses the theology of the Last Supper in very great detail in this uh, discourse that we call the Bread of Life Discourse, where Jesus says uh, to the crowd, he says, Amen, amen, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate manna in the desert, but they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat it and not die. Jesus said to the Jewish crowds, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever, and the bread that I will give is my flesh for the life of the world. The Jews quarreled among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Jesus said to them, Amen, amen, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you do not have life within you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in him. Just as the living Father sent me, and I have life because of the Father, so also the one who feeds on me will have life because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Unlike your ancestors who ate and still died, whoever eats this bread will live forever. Now, if you go on in the gospel story after this discourse, most of the disciples leave. They can't, fa they can't fathom this concept. How is he going to give us his flesh to eat? How is bread becoming flesh? How does this work? This is a, a great mystery, and this is obviously has been a mystery that, that many people have struggled with, even, to, even in the current day, because it is, by its very nature, it is the what's the word, the focal point, the, fo the fulcrum, let's say, of incarnational theology. God, as God became flesh and blood, the body of Christ becomes bread. There's the, the great incarnational theology there, that Jesus is fully God and yet at the same time fully human. The Eucharist is 
fully the body of Christ, and yet at the same time, bread. But how, we, how we've worked through this throughout the centuries has, um, has been difficult. But this Eucharist this, that we celebrate, we talked about how uh, last week, how the apostles gathered together for four things, for the apostolic teaching, for the breaking of bread, the prayers, and for the liturgy. And the, this is the essence of their daily worship. Always include the breaking of the bread or the Holy Eucharist. St. Paul talks about it in this very early letter. He writes to the church at Corinth because they're already, they're already offering Eucharist every single day. This is the normative act of the Christian faith from the very beginning. Just imagine... If you're about, if you're, if you're Christ and you're about to face your passion, you have one night left to spend with your apostles. One, you have one event to try to impart to them how they are going to hold on to your, to the faith in you for the, for, for the centuries to come, millennia to come. What do you do? And Jesus institutes the Holy Eucharist. This is the focal point of Christian worship for all ages. And of course, the Catholic Church has maintained that, and many, many other churches do as well. The Christian Church maintains that. The, um, of course, the Orthodox, the Coptic, the Syrians, all of these ancient churches that have... Um, that have roots in the apostolic era, they all maintain that the focal point of worship is in fact the Holy Eucharist. That said, the theology of the Holy Eucharist um, in the Catholic Church, we, we've given it a word, transubstantiation, and that's a really confusing word. Um, let me kind of explain to you how that came about. Obviously, from the first century on, all Christians always believed that the bread and wine of the Holy Eucharist was the body and blood of Jesus. It's so clear in the, in the language that Jesus uses when he takes the bread and says, this is my body. He doesn't say this is a symbol of or this represents or think about my body when you eat bread. He takes the bread and says quite simply, this is my body. And in the cup, the same way, this is my blood. And in this work, from John chapter six, we really get the clear understanding of what Jesus is saying. My flesh is real food. I am the bread of life. This is the bread that you eat that will let you, that will ensure that you live forever. And this was of course all believed and practiced in the earliest centuries of the church. However, there came a time in the church and this is um, spurred on by a couple of things. You know, the Coptic Church, they kind of stopped playing with the Roman Church, Roman Catholic Church around 500 AD. The, the Orthodox churches, would be the Greek, the Russian Orthodox, those churches, they, they separated from the Roman Catholic Church around uh, um, in the 11th century, about 1054. And the Catholic Church began defining more things. What makes us different from the Orthodox? What makes us different from the Coptics? 
And the Roman Catholic Church had its own culture, its own language, and its own way of viewing things. So around about the 13th century, um, the church decided they wanted to define the Eucharist. Up until then, it was kind of just loose, loosely defined. Everybody believed that this is the body and blood of Jesus, but um, the church wanted to, dis to, wanted to discuss things. How does this work? How does this happen? And so Tom, St. Thomas Aquinas was, was kind of tasked with the, uh, uh, with the job of writing up an explanation. Now, Thomas Aquinas was a brilliant man. He was a philosopher, he was a scientist, and he was a theologian, a Dominican monk. And um, so he kind of brought all of those disciplines together to try to explain the Holy Eucharist. Now, being a philosopher, he turned to uh, Aristotle and if anybody studied philosophy, or at least your high school philosophy, you kind of get the, the picture of Plato had this idea of forms. If you study Plato and the forms, the, the spiritual essence of all things, and what we experience on earth is some shadow of the things that, that exist in this spiritual realm. Aristotle refined that a little bit, and he said that the spiritual essence of things is called substance. And the individual reality or materiality of things he calls accidents. Now, it has nothing to do with motorcycles, right? Substance and accidents. So, Thomas Aquinas decided that one way to define what happens in Eucharist is to say that the substance, the essence of the thing, the spiritual reality that supersedes everything we see in materiality is transformed from bread into wine. This is going from bread into body. But the accidents, the materiality of it remains the same. It's a very confusing concept, but mostly because we don't think in those terms anymore. I don't think anybody really believes, or at least in our common, we don't, we don't talk about this, you know, anything having a spiritual essence that exists on a plane other than than the reality you know we don't think in terms of an apple being a material manifestation of a supernatural form of apple-ness do we we don't think in those terms i mean it's an apple there's no there's no spiritual essence beyond it just being an apple it's made up of atoms right and so but it made sense to people who lived in an Aristotelian philosophical framework. And so that's the word the church began to use to regard what happens at the Eucharist, transubstantiation. The, the spiritual essence of the bread becomes the body of Christ, but its materiality remains bread, substance and accidents. If we were to redo this, Today, then, you know, I, I, would, I would vote for a quantum non-local, what, what's it, um, entanglement, quantum non-local entanglement. That's, that's what we would, that's how we would define it. But that wouldn't do any good because in 500 years, nobody would be talking that way, right? That, that wouldn't make sense to anybody. Fortunately or unfortunately, the word transubstantiation made its way into Catholic dogma. And so, it's essential for priests to be able 
to understand what the medieval authors meant in their definition of these Catholic doctrines. That's why every priest, except for me, <laughs> because I'm, I'm cut out of a different mold, but most priests um, have to get a degree in philosophy before they can go to seminary to study theology because they can't make sense of the theology without understanding the philosophical framework from which these theological definitions come. So if you hear this word transubstantiation and it's confusing to you, don't be frightened by it. All it means is that the bread, in fact, most, most theologians today don't even use, like to use that word, they like to use the term real presence. And so real presence means that the bread becomes the real presence of the body of Christ. The cup becomes the real presence of the blood of Christ. It's a little bit more ambiguous than, than the Aristotelian approach to things, but it, it gives us room to say, we don't really know how it happens. We can't define how it happens. It's a sacrament, which means it's a mystery. But when we receive the the real Holy Eucharist, we receive the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus. And I always talk about the great exchange when we come to Eucharist, we come to the Eucharistic table. We give to Christ our brokenness, our sin, our failures, and he gives to us his very self, his body, blood, soul, and divinity. That's what we receive. It's a great bargain, by the way. So we give everything that's wrong with us and he gives us everything that's right, true and good and eternal. We trade the, the materiality, of the, not the materiality, but the, um, we trade you know, the effects of the sinful world and we receive the, effect, the effects of heaven in the Holy Eucharist. But this has been an issue that has, um, Troubled, troubled people. And so there's always been a need to overcome doubt. I mean, even, even at the point of when Jesus gave the bread of life discourse, most of the disciples left. They couldn't stomach it. They couldn't, they couldn't follow what Christ was trying to say, he was trying to teach. And so they left. They wouldn't have anything to do with him. But God in his graciousness has over the centuries given us what we call Eucharistic miracles. These are just, and I'm gonna to touch on a little bit, and, and they're kind of visual, at least some of them are. These are documented occasions in which we learn something about, um, we, we see, begin to see and touch. You know, G the reason, in fact, in Jesus's ministry, he says, if you don't believe my words, believe because of the signs. The reason that God gives us miracles is so that we can have something to grasp hold of, grab hold of in our faith. In psychology, we call that mediational units. So that something that we could understand and say, oh, wow, this is, this is real. And then through that, be able to make that next leap into, into faith and into belief. If my very old projector warms up, I should have turned it on earlier. Um, yeah, I haven't, when I was a business consultant, I used this, this thing a lot. I haven't used it in a long time and it's, it's letting me down. 
Is it working now? It's going to work? Yes, here we go. Eucharistic miracles. Okay. So what a Eucharistic miracle is, is that miraculous occurrence by which we begin to see there is something truly special here in the Eucharist. First thing I want to chat about is one of these should work. There we go. A couple of these women, this is called mystical fast fasting. Both of these women, um, Martha Robin, who's on the left, she fasted. She, she actually, the only food or drink she ever received was her daily Eucharist, the, whole, the, the bread and the wine of the daily Eucharist. And you know how much food this is from 1930 to 1981. That's all she had to eat for 51 years. Um, Therese, Teresa Newman, or Therese Newman on the other side, uh, she was a stig, stigmatist. I don't know if you can see, her hands have those black spots on them. So she actually had the nail prints of, of uh, nail scars of Jesus, nail wounds, let me say, of Jesus in her hands and she bled from her aunt, hands. And sometimes she would weep blood and, and things like that. But again, she was a, um, what we call a she, this mystical fasting. She did not um, have anything to eat, no solid food uh, from whole, uh, except the Holy Eucharist from 1926 until her death in 1962, 36 years. All she had to eat was the, uh, the body and blood of Jesus. So and there, God miraculously sustained her physical body during this, all this time. Um, other types of Eucharistic miracles, a lot of them have to do with the host. This miracle occurred in Lanciano, Italy in the 8th century. And there was a priest who was experiencing doubts about the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist. And in the middle of saying mass, this is my, when he said, this is my body and this is my blood, the bread and the wine began to transform into real human flesh and blood. The blood coagulated into five globules. And the, um, and it was placed into a monstrance and preserved to this day. You can see the, um, you know, this is a little bit closer up. This is, this was a host that turned into flesh. And it was eventually tested in, in modern times. It was tested to determine it actually is a, um, a portion of a heart muscle is the type of flesh that this is, what, what, this, what this became. Uh, another Eucharistic miracle, this happened in or, uh, Orvieto, uh, Italy, and this is in the 13th century. Again, a priest having doubts, celebrating the Mass, he consecrated the Eucharist, and then the host started to bleed onto the corporal. And what has been preserved from that miracle is actually the corporal itself has been preserved in a reliquary. So you can see the blood stains on, on the corporal. This miracle so impressed uh, the Pope, Pope Urban IV, that he instituted the Feast of Corpus Christi, the body of, of Christ. We celebrate the Feast of Corpus Christi um, every year, third or fourth Sunday after Easter, I forget what it is, but the Feast of the Body and Blood of, of Jesus. And it became, this feast was celebrated because of this miracle. 
And the Pope, having witnessed this miracle, said that we need to place more emphasis upon uh, the reality of the body and blood of Christ. Of course, this is middle age, this is medieval church, and there's a lot of ignorance in the in the pews. So this is one of the ways they have a teaching, teaching them. So we still celebrate this feast, and also from this time on, there began to be a great great deal of more um, reverence towards the Holy Eucharist, more adoration of the Holy Eucharist. We can use the mantras, we could, add, we could have adoration prayer, adore the Holy Eucharist, um, mass, a lot of changes to the mass. One of the things that happens, and this still is, works in masses in traditional churches, that the priest will face the tabernacle when he says mass. That's the way I say the 930 mass, because that's a traditional mass. So rather than face the people like we do, typically the, I'll face the tabernacle as we say the Eucharistic prayer. So because there's a, there was a greater emphasis upon the reality of Christ's presence in the body and blood of Jesus. And um, so you'll notice, this is one of those things that explanations of mass, which sometimes I get around to. When I consecrate the host, I say the, I say the words of Jesus, I present it to the people, I elevate it, and that's a medieval practice. I elevate the host and then I genuflect as an act of worship because it's no longer bread. It's now the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus. I do the same thing with the cup. I elevate it. I set it down. I genuflect. This is now the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus. Um, so it's an act of worship. We don't particularly notice because we don't come from a culture that has a lot of royalty. But you notice that when you, you watch movies and they go and they see the king and they'll go down on one knee, they always go down on the left knee. Only God gets the right knee. <laughs> so when you come into genuflect, you genuflect on the right knee because it's an act of worship, Christ who is hidden in the tabernacle. But if you ever go see the queen, you kneel with the left knee because she's just the queen. <laughs> Just a little tidbit there. Um, another Eucharistic miracle. I got a million of them, as, as Jimmy Durante used to say. Um, this took place in Santarem, Portugal. Oh, this is kind of a funny story. There was a woman um, who thought her husband was having an affair. And um, so she went to consult a sorceress, you know, to, to, to find out if her husband's having an affair and turn the, um, whoever he's having an affair with into a frog or something, I don't know. But anyway, to, to do the magic, the sorceress said that she needed a consecrated host. And so this is something that black magic, um, black, black magicians used in the Middle Ages, probably still do if they can get hands on a, a consecrated host. We keep, you know, the tabernacle locked for that reason. So she went to mass, she received a host, um, she stuck it on her tongue, and then she, but she didn't consume it, and then she took it out. Uh, she wrapped it up in her veil, headed out the church door, but before she, got, um, before she got out of the church, the host began to bleed. And by, by veil, you know, you know in so, some, some way there's this chapel veil, this, that's a, which is what's left over of, of in the first century, women had to wear 
like bukras, like a, a mask covering their face. Now women just wear this little veil. Um, so she had this, this host bleeding into her veil. She, puts, she goes home, she puts it in a trunk, and then the trunk started to glow. She repented of what she did. She decided maybe this was not a good idea. <laughs> she repents and she takes the, the, uh, the host and the veil back to the priest. And um, so he, um, what does a priest do? And some woman comes in and says, here, I was going to give this to a witch and I decided to give it to you instead. He calls the bishop and he says, what do I do with this? And then, of course, the bishop launches an, uh, a, uh, an investigation. And uh, let's see, there's a, a closer up that you can see this bloody host that still exists that they put in a monstrance and they keep it in the church to this day. This miracle that happened in, um, in Portugal. Just, this is all fascinating. So I got a million of them. All right, the, uh, in Siena, Italy, um, there was a uh, festival at the ease of the Assumptions. Thieves broke into the church and stole the ciborium. The ciborium is that, um, it looks like kind of like a cup, but it's got a lid on it, and that's where we keep the consecrated hosts inside the tabernacle. Well, it's made out of gold, and so thieves really didn't care about the hosts. They wanted, they wanted the gold ciborium. So having grabbed the ciborium, they flee, but they don't know what to do with the hosts that are inside. So they thought, well, we better give them back to the church. So they go to a different church because they think this is probably not a good idea to be walking into the same church we stole it from. They go back into a different church and they dump all the hosts into the poor box. And the churches back then had poor boxes in the back and some still do. Um, so anyway, so they dump them into the poor box. Eventually the priest goes to empty the money out of the poor box and he finds all the hosts consecrated hosts again what do you do with them so they they dusted them off they cleaned them up and um, they didn't want to consume them because they were pretty dirty so they decided just to let them deteriorate which is one of the options there are lots there are a few ways to deal with consecrated hosts hosts and you can just let them decompose it's just a little piece of bread it'll eventually just evaporate um, but as you can see 300 years later they never decomposed. They just, they remained perfect and pure. Incorrupt is the church's term from the incorrupt hosts through for 300 years and they're still there in the monstrance waiting to decompose. This is a fascinating one, but in Batania, Venezuela, all right, we've been kind of moving up in the time, by the way. I'm not, I'm not been giving you the years very good. 1991, so this is actually very current. You can, you can go down there and see this um, if you want to. But in Batania, um, Venezuela, let's see, Father Ati, who is chaplain of, of the uh, church there, that... Um, he had taken the, the priest toast like I do. He broke it into four pieces, which I used to do, except for COVID. Now I have to consume the whole thing and give them out. But he noticed that a, a, one of the pieces of the host had a red spot on it. It was starting to bleed. So he then he took that piece of the host, he set it uh, in a special place, preserved it there in the, uh, 
in the tabernacle. And the next day he went to check it, check on it again, discovered that the blood was flowing, that there was the, the blood was just flowing out of the uh, of, out of the host. And um, anyway, so then it became, then he placed this in a, uh, again, in a reliquary where it could be observed and, uh, and venerated. But this is not the end of it. In 1998, so we were talking about seven years later, some pilgrims, people who come to this place, you know, to, to venerate this host, they're there, and the host begins to beat like a heart. It begins to glow and beat like a heart. Now, fortunately, one of the pilgrims had a video camera and actually filmed this. Now, I'm going to show you next, but, I'll, but this, is, this is 1998. So this is probably a VHS. It's, you know, it's, he's holding it. It's a little shaky. Um, but he begins to film this. And let's see if you can see this. Hopefully, the screen is big enough that you can actually see it beginning to beat like a heart. Amazing. So, by the way, you can go online. You can get all, all of these, all these pictures, all of these videos. Um, it's amazing. You just go to Wikipedia and look up Eucharistic miracle, and Wikipedia's got a great article on various Eucharistic miracles. Okay, so um, just. Just not to, just so we don't think that Catholics have a, um, a corner on this market. Um, and an Anglican church in Arkansas, remember I used to be an Anglican before I was Catholic, Anglicans believe in their real presence. And most Anglican, or a lot, of, a lot of Anglican priests are ordained in apostolic succession. We talked about who laid hands on who all the way down. And Anglicans have had to go out of their way because the succession for the Anglican church was intentionally broken by Henry VIII, so Anglicans have to go talk a Catholic bishop <laughs> into ordaining, to, to, you know, consecrating them so that they can uh, be within apostolic succession. And so uh, this is the Corpus Christi Anglican Church in Arkansas, 2017. This is very recent. And there is, uh, what happened, the priest was saying mass, and as he is saying mass, the, there, um, there is above the chalice a mystical host, this glowing host just began to appear above the chalice and was there for some time. And I, gave, I tried to make a little uh, blow up of it so you could see it's just like a ball of light that's on this. Fascinating. Corpus Christi Anglican Church in Arkansas and that was just 2017. Another 21st century Eucharistic miracle occurred in India, where again, a host, be, um, a host began to bleed, and as the blood fell on the corporal, it began to form the face of Christ. This is uh, 2001 in India, and they placed it again into a, this is actually the corporal that they placed into, let me make sure I'm reading this correctly. 
No, this is on the host. This is not, not the corporal. This is on the host that, it, that the drops of blood appeared and they began to coalesce into the face of Christ on the host. And again, they got a photographer, had a, got a photographer to take the picture and they keep it there in the chapel now to be venerated. Now, why does God give us these miracles? Quite frankly, because he's very compassionate and merciful. God knows that this is something that's beyond our understanding. It's beyond our, um, I mean, it's something that we're going to struggle with. And so throughout the centuries, again and again, and there are hundreds, literally hundreds of these Eucharistic miracles, um, most of which have been thoroughly examined by the church and, uh, and verified so that it just helps us believe that although we can't understand it, that indeed the, the bread and the wine become the real presence, the real presence of the body and blood and soul and divinity of Jesus. Well, there's one other miracle that I kind of saved for, for, the, for the end. And, um, and this is, this is uh, one of my favorite miracles. This happened um, in Buenos Aires. Brown, 1983, I forget, but late, late 20th century. 1996, okay, I see my date. 1996, St. Mary's Church in Buenos Aires. Um, a priest is saying Mass, and, and they have Eucharistic ministers who are passing the Mass out. And as, as they're kind of going back to their pews, we, we know how it works, right? one of the Eucharistic ministers sees a discarded host. Someone had received the host, but rather than consume it, they tossed it aside for whatever reason. Um, or maybe they just accidentally dropped it and didn't want to pick it up and just left it there. I don't know, but anyway, the, this host got cast aside. And so she comes and she gets this, this host that's been tossed away and she gives it to the priest and the priest says, you know, has, has some options. He can consume it or he can just, again, let it, let it decompose or what um, I commonly do and what he intended to do was just put it in a glass of water, let it dissolve, and then you can just, you know, pour it out on church property or in a church plant or anything like that. And, and I've done this many times because this happens. So, he puts it into a glass of water, sits it in the tabernacle, and he goes back a week later to, to get it and to pour it out. But he discovers something strange. It's no longer a piece of bread. It started to turn into a piece of flesh. It's much larger, it's thicker, and it's bloody. And so again, what, do you, what is he gonna do with it? He calls the bishop. The bishop happens to be Jorge Bergoglio, who is later going to become Pope Francis. So he calls the bishop and he says, what do I do with this? And he says, don't tell anyone, have it professionally photographed and put it back into the tabernacle, which is exactly what he did. So he doesn't tell anyone, he has it photographed, puts it back in the tabernacle and stays there for some time, for several years. See, the church is not, 
I know you would think, well, if we had a miracle, we'd want everybody to know, right? Make a, you know, put out a big sign. Miracles happen here. But the church is not like that. We won't make a big deal out of miracles because our faith is not based on miracles. Our faith is based on Jesus. So he says, put it, put it away. So that's what they did. They put it away. But three years later, they check it again. Cardinal Bergoglio looks at it and he says, this is for real, but let's have it scientifically analyzed. So what they did is they went to a, um, a, a, a CSI lab, except it wasn't a CSI, but, but a forensics lab in New York State. Dr. Frederick Zugaba was the name of the scientist that, that operated the lab. And they brought uh, a small piece of this host, which now turned flesh, and they gave it to him to scientifically analyze. And so he does the analysis and he, he says, but they don't tell him where it comes from. And so this is what it is. So he says, okay, this came from the left ventricle of a heart of a man who has been terribly beaten. You can tell by the white corpuscle count um, in, the, uh, in, in the tissue that this, this person was, was terribly beaten about the chest. And um, he did an analysis of the DNA and determined that it belonged to a Middle Eastern male. After he gives them this information, they reveal to him where the host came from. Interestingly, Zugaba, Dr. Zugaba, was not a, a Christian. He was an agnostic. You know, he didn't really, he hadn't really decided yet about God. But after this, he decided <laughs> and eventually and went on to become a devout Catholic because of the evidence of this host that became a heart muscle from the left ventricle of the heart from someone who had been severely beaten about the chest and who was a Middle Eastern male. It was the heart of Jesus. Now, why do I share that story? There are two things. One is, remember, we don't believe in the Eucharist because of the miracles. We believe in the miracles because we believe in the Eucharist. We believe that this becomes the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus because of Christ's own words, not because of some miraculous manifestation that we have seen. That's the first thing to note. But the second thing is this. Don't throw away Jesus. This miracle in Buenos Aires starts because someone has this, this host, the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus and tosses it away or drops it and decides well, to leave it alone, to just discard it, to walk past it, not to, not to touch it. Don't throw away Jesus. This is precious, the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus. And we should always treat it with 
the utmost of respect. We adore Christ in Eucharistic adoration. We come and give ourselves to Jesus. He gives himself to us. This is a very, very special moment. This is, again, the fulcrum sacrament. As, Christ, as God became human flesh, in the Eucharist, Christ's become, Christ becomes bread. His bread becomes the, the flesh of God. This is a fulcrum sacrament. And that is why from the days of Christ on, from the very first day of the church, the day of Pentecost, they immediately start celebrating mass every day to receive the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus. And that has always been what the church has understood in the Lord's Prayer, which we pray at every Mass. Give us this day our daily bread. That in day, the daily bread we receive is the body of Christ. So, um, All right, so that is all I had to really share on the Eucharist tonight. And we, it, well, that clock is getting further and further behind. It tells me I've got 10 more minutes. No, I don't. It's time. It's 8 o'clock. So let me wrap up and check for questions. We have a small group here, but any questions? Yes, what, the question is, what happened to my microphone? Oh, Yunky's got it. <laughs> Sure, take off the mask so I can understand you. Well, my was going to be, how come there's never one here in the United States, but you just gave us an example of one that happened in Arkansas. I didn't, I have not heard that before. That's close. Yeah, and I mean, I always heard of ones that happened in other countries and never here, and so that was interesting. And also, while I'm watching that, I'm amazed, but it was also a little scary mm. to see that. I mean, we, we say, okay, that is the body of Christ, and I believe that's the body of Christ. And every Sunday when I receive communion, you say the body of Christ, and I say amen. And this is the second time I've seen these pictures, and they still just blow my mind with amazement yeah. and awe. And but but I shouldn't be surprised, you know, um, because we know it's his body. But to see and to hear the two different stories about it, part of the heart, incredible, just incredible. Yeah, both the Eucharistic miracle in Lanciano and the one in Buenos Aires were tested, and in in that this was heart muscle that yeah. it had turned into. Yeah. Um, yeah, but see, that's the correct understanding of the fear of God. It's not that we're afraid of God, but when we come to a realization of how awesome God really is, mm -hmm. there is an emotion that is like fear. I, I, and I'm not sure that we even have, you, you, when usually when I translate the scriptures, I, I translate fear reverence, but that that's not really doesn't do it justice. It's, it's probably closer to fear, but it's not fear in the sense of, I'm afraid of God. It's like I am in the presence of something beyond comprehension. Yes. Yeah. 
I don't know if I used the word scary. Um, you, I think you said scary, but yeah. yeah. But, but that, maybe but that, that was is, the wrong word to use. Maybe it was just, here's, there's no word to describe it. Exactly. That's our problem. We don't have a word in human language to describe what it's like to be in God's presence. Yeah. Yeah. The so Quakers, was, I love the Quakers. They used to, um, they would come they would come to prayer and they would begin to enter into the presence of god through prayer and then they would begin to shake all over that's why they're called quakers because mm -hmm. they would tremble all over their body that's only happened to me once in prayer that i'm praying and then suddenly my whole body begins to tremble it's almost like you know like you you, you cry, you're trying to replace the electric outlet and you cross the wires and you, you feel that jolt but like you couldn't get away from it it's just Mm -hmm. My body's trembling like that. And uh, yeah. So that was, and where were those two women from? The Mar Martha Robin and One is One is French. And I think the other one might have been from the U.S. Um, I don't know that I have in my notes. Uh, but one is French. Um, Mar Martha Robin was is uh, a French mystic. And... Um, no, the, okay, Teresa Newman, the other one's from, from Bavaria, so she's from Germany. And something that happened outside of... But I, I know a Eucharistic miracle that happened in Boston around 1980. And, um, and it, it was kind of, it was like, like a live, it was a live stream to mass, right? And so, and the, the priest picked up the hopes and it began to bleed. I've, you know, watched it on, on the camera. Wow. Now, so. Yeah, so it does happen in the U.S. But again, the, the Catholic Church, we're, we don't get big about broadcasting miracles. Um, and I've had priests fuss at me for doing this exact presentation because I don't tell people about miracles because we don't want them to, you know, believe because of miracles. But, mm. um, you know, God gives us these because he knows so it's like the, the father of the demoniac who says, Jesus asked him, do you believe? And he says, yes, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief, because that's the way we all struggle. And God's gracious. Other questions? Anybody else? All right, let us uh, wrap up with a, a word of prayer. As we, it's, it's after eight, and so... Uh, let us pray in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Precious Lord, we thank you for this time together. We thank you for the amazing miracles that you have given us that help us um, understand your love and your grace and your awesome power in your presence in the Holy Eucharist. May we always come to your table with the deepest sense of devotion and reverence as we give to you our brokenness, our sin, our distress and our doubts, and you give to us the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus to forgive our sins, to instruct and lead and guide, and to transform us into your image. And we us give God glory and praise as we pray together the doxology. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. God bless you guys. Thank you so much for coming. I put on my mask so I can come down and be with you. Thank you for sharing.